Hello and welcome to Humongous Living by Caddis. Today is Chip Connolly, and we are going to be discussing navigating transitions. We'll talk about fixed mindsets versus growth mindsets, the idea of time affluence. Chip began his career with a string of hotels called Joie de Vivre, which he grew to 52 hotels, I believe. Eventually sold it to Hyatt and then went on to Airbnb for seven and a half years, which led him to the experience of multi-generational workforces, which he has a lot of experience with. Chip has written many books, the last one being Wisdom at Work, about his Airbnb experience. And we're going to be talking about what he's doing with his latest gig, which is the MEA down in Baja, California, and the new campuses that are in Santa Fe, New Mexico. So a lot of info on this one. Really fun to talk to him. One of the OGs of the aging business, um, as we call it, and a mentor and a friend. Thanks for listening. Chip Connolly, we've known each other about six years now, and I cannot ignore, we're going to start with just the absolute weirdness of us living on either sides of a farm from one another in the tip of Baja, Mexico, and how strange that is when you were starting the MEA around the same, you had actually started a year before, and I had started Caddis, and we were on either sides of a farm for crying out loud and in this similar but very different age business i would call it yeah you know it's interesting and and just to give everybody sort of like the visual reference here there's a farm in between us and then there's a desert and there's tropical (laughs) there's like little tropical forests and there's an ocean and there's seven thousand foot mountains this is pretty cool i mean like you know when when dacker keltner the UC Berkeley professor, who's the greatest, you know, the world's greatest mind when it comes to awe, when he's your neighbor, <laughs> the cool, you know, you know, you're in a good neighborhood when like the cool awe dude loves your, he loves your neighborhood too. So we live in a great place. I miss it right now. I'm in San Francisco right now. And yeah, I miss Baja, especially in the winter. I bet. I bet. Yeah. I, it, it's really interesting that we both went into this. Why did you get into this business? Why did you get into Caddis? It's bizarre. Well, first I needed reading glasses. Okay. So that's the product end. So put that aside. Then someone told me as I was trying to raise money that no one wants to believe that they're the age that they are. And everyone wants to believe that they're 15 years younger. And from a lifestyle brand marketing, I thought that was the most screwed up thing I've ever heard and wrong. And that's what launched me. That was the big aha moment of like, oh crap, like we're actually in the age business. If it's causing this much disruption in people's thinking, I go, this is perfect. Like, this is exactly what I was looking for. So that's how I got into it. And then I met you and Jeff and Christine kind of shortly thereafter. So how did you get into it? I mean, you have such a deep background. It's frightening. <laughs> but I am but... deep. I'm a deep. I'm a deep human being. You are. Okay, I'll give a little intro of myself. Okay, I started a boutique hotel company in my mid-20s, which is sort of a weird, thinking back on it, like, who does that? But I was really fascinated by boutique hotels because this was the mid-1980s and there just weren't many of them. And most of the hotels in the U.S. were just, you know, Hilton's and Marriott's and so boring. 
And so in San Francisco, I bought an old motel, pay by the hour motel. <laughs> if you know, you know what was going on there. It was a no-tell motel. Uh, in the tenderloin, I would um, add. In the tenderloin, still there, 37 years later. And I turned it into a sort of hip and cool rock and roll hotel, the Phoenix. And 51 hotels later, so I did 52 hotels over 24 years in California. Joie de Vivre, my company, the, the overall brand. I'm not very good at branding, you know, just so everybody's listening here. You know, <laughs> Tim is a much better brander than I am. I come up with awful names for brands. <laughs> so Joie de Vivre was a great name in the sense that it means joy of life. A great name in the sense our mission was also the name of the company. No one could pronounce it. No one could spell it. No one knew what it meant. <laughs> so... But yeah, I grew into the second largest boutique hotelier in the U.S. And then I, ha I had my midlife crisis in my late 40s, which is now I know this thing called the U-curve of happiness tells you like, hey, that's normal. You know, 45 to 50 is a really rough period. Your mileage may vary, <laughs> those of you who are listeners, but I had a really bad 45 to 50. And I got through it barely and ultimately sold my company. It's a Hyatt brand now called JDV. They got rid of the Joie de Vivre. And they just said JDV. It's and your KFC method of. I of, guess so, uh, or JCP. Yeah. I tried to make JCP and JCP. I don't know what. I don't know. Long story short is I, in my early fifties, had no idea what was next for me. In the movie The Intern with Robert De Niro, he says musicians don't retire; they quit when there's no more music left inside of them. And I had music inside of me. I just didn't know who to share it with. And now I would call it wisdom. At that time, I would never have called it wisdom at age 50. And so two years later, the founders of Airbnb decided they wanted to meet me to share my music or my music, my wisdom with them. And I spent seven and a half years, four years full-time and three and a half years part-time, basically helping to, I don't know, helping them with just about everything because they were really smart and they had a company that was growing quickly. Although when I joined 11 years ago, nobody had ever heard of it in my world. And even though I was a hotelier and um, long story short is I loved my experience there. They called me the modern elder. I didn't like that a whole lot. And then they said, Chip, a modern elder is someone who's as curious as they are wise. And I had started calling myself a mentor, a mentor and an intern at the same time, because yes, they brought me in to be the mentor, but I was also an intern because at age 52, I'd never worked in a tech company. So long story short is that's what led to MEA is after my four years full time, I bought a home down in Baja on the beach. And I decided like, okay, I am ready to enjoy my later life. You know, I've left Airbnb. I'm writing a book called Wisdom at Work, The Making of a Modern Elder. And next thing I knew, I had a Baja aha one day. I had an epiphany. And that was, why do we not have midlife wisdom schools? A place where people can reimagine and repurpose themselves. And that's how MEA came about. And 4,000 Plus alums later from 45 countries who've come to Baja, that's what we're doing. The timing on that, like, how do you explain that? Because your timing was, for lack of better words, perfect. Because as you were starting that, then we started to see adoption in pop culture. And granted, the bus is just leaving the station. It's not like we are. <laughs> oh, we're so maybe second inning of this nine inning baseball game. Totally right? agree. And longevity means it's going to be a longer baseball game. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, we have, I love that Caddis and you talk about being an anti-anti-aging product. <laughs> and, and, I, and we call ourselves a pro-aging product. So you have a double negative and we just say like, let's go to pro. Let's pro-aging. But the bottom line is, yeah, we live in a culture where I think ageism is the last socially acceptable ism that exists out 
Becca Levy at Yale. So we love our programs really dedicated to, you know, taking social science, whether it's Dacker's work from UC Berkeley or Becca Levy from Yale. Her work shown that basically when people shift their mindset on aging from a negative to a positive, they gain seven and a half years of additional life, which is more life than if you stopped smoking at 50 or started exercising at 50. So where are the public service announcements, the PSAs for this pro-aging message of, hey, aging is not the end of the world. It's actually, frankly, there's some upsides, some unexpected pleasures of aging as well. So you brought up the ageism thing, and you're absolutely correct. It is it is an acceptable form of ism. When I was trying to raise money, and I say trying because I am the worst at it, and it was painful. Granted, this was in San Francisco at the time, you know, of all the booming unicorns. But I was put in touch with uh, an executive at a very famous tech firm that we all know and love, and he also has his own fund. And on our meeting, he told me straight up, well, I'm just going to let you know that you're going to have a hard time with a raise. And I asked why. And he's like, if I'm being honest with you, it's because of your age. So Tim, how old are you now? I'm 56 right now. So I was 50. So back then this was, you were 50. 50. Yeah. 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 And I said, thank you. I mean, my God, for that type of honesty, it was really eye-opening to me. So it's something that's real. And what MEA has created is amazing and innovative, to say the least. Yeah. Well, I, I just think, you know, Carl Jung, the famous psychologist, said a lot like many years ago, where are the colleges for 40-year-olds? <laughs> and because we live longer now, this is, gosh, 100 years ago, he may have said that, or at least 75. So where we are today is like we're living longer. So it's not where are the colleges for 40-year-olds? Where where's the college for 50-year-olds? And our average age of people who come to MEA is 54. And we've had people as young as 25, who knew, and as old as 88. And in fact, the 88-year-old went surfing. We have a morning where we go surfing for those who want to at the Baja campus. We have a campus opening in Santa Fe, New Mexico in April, 2,600 acre regenerative horse ranch. But long story short is, yeah, thank God I didn't have to go out and get investors back then. I was lucky enough because of my Airbnb experience that I can fund this sucker for a while. And I will be raising some money for one of our campuses in Santa Fe, a second campus we're doing there. But yeah, it is, you're right. It is, there are a lot of people who look at what we're doing and they say, well, that's not that's not where the advertisers want to be. That's not where the Madison Avenue wants to be. And it's sort of crazy though, because it's like, we, there's this, there's an old psychology around marketing, which is you got to catch them when they're young. <laughs> and so you got to, you got to market to the 18 to 34 year old, et cetera, because that doesn't make any sense. I mean, number one is that they don't have as much disposable income. Number two is they're not loyal like they used to be. Like you get loyal to a brand. Maybe you, you get loyal to Crest Toothpaste. Okay. Yes, I am loyal to Crest <laughs> Toothpaste. Have been since I was a kid. But <laughs> how many other things are you not loyal to? Yeah. And then all that disposable disposable income is up at the upper segments, and you're not competing with a bunch of other players in that upper segment of the age bracket. So, yeah, it doesn't make sense. No, it doesn't make sense. And to the point where you start to question your own logic, because you know, this is where all the income is. It's $8 trillion of income that sits waiting to be spent. And everyone's fighting to your point. It's very quiet in that, like, let's call it 45 to 75 year old demographic, which is actually a great kind of segue into what I want to talk about. So I'll kind of stop myself because I can get on my soapbox about that. First of all, my inbox 
is sacred <laughs> to me. And your newsletter is one of three that I only keep because it's so damn good. And we'll put in show notes, like how to sign up for it and everything, but absolutely one of the best newsletters that someone can receive from that newsletter. You sent one last week that really caught my attention. And as we were discussing you coming on this podcast, it had to do with the change, right? And changes that occur. So changes, and sometimes we choose them and sometimes they choose us, right? So whether it be job, divorce, you know, something entrepreneurial, a disease, all these things that happen to us when we're not ready for it. And the three things that you touched on that I want to get into a bit was the too much comfort in what I'm currently doing is a huge one. And these are the things that dissuade people from changing. Correct. Correct. I'm sorry. I didn't, I didn't preface that, but yes, lack of clarity of the first steps. You know, like I want to do this, but how do I even begin? And then the support system. It's pretty simple. I mean, that, <laughs> that, I mean, let's be honest. I mean, <laughs> Those three things, some of my blog posts, so my blog is called Wisdom Well and love people. It's free, a free you get, if you subscribe, it's free and you get an email sent to me, to you every day. And it's also on my, on social media. Yeah. Some of my blog posts are a little more out there, but that one was pretty simple. It was like, okay, you know, for a lot of people, one of the things that makes them resist change is because they're comfortable in where they are now, even if they're comfort in their discomfort. And so they get used to the fact that their relationship with their spouse isn't all that good. They haven't had sex in three years and they don't like their boss. They don't really like their job, but they feel obligated to stay because they have two kids in college, you know, et cetera. So there's all these reasons that we sort of stay with where we are. Some of it comes down to this idea of fixed versus growth mindset. And a, a fixed mindset means you're just trying to optimize what you got. And a growth mindset assumes that you'll get better and you can learn. And so- one of the things we teach at MEA is like, how do you move from a fixed to a growth mindset on all kinds of the parts of your life? And often what happens, unfortunately, in midlife is that people get hit up the side of the head on circumstances outside their control. You know, all of a sudden they get divorce papers filed by their spouse with as a surprise and they lose their job. They are empty nesters and hadn't really prepared for that, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so sometimes it's the external circumstances that force people to make the change. The second one is they don't know the first steps. And that's another thing. We have a workshop as part of our core curriculum called Navigating Transitions. That workshop is all about how do you understand the three stages of a transition? Think about a caterpillar to a butterfly journey. The caterpillar, there's a process the caterpillar has to go to to end its life as a caterpillar. There's no ritual. It's not like doing some woo-woo workshop or anything like that. But there's a sense like, okay, it's going to start spinning its chrysalis and it's now going to go into the second stage. So the first stage of any transition is you have to actually ritualize the ending of something and something's ending. The second stage is the messy middle. And that's when you actually need social support, which is the third thing you mentioned, as well as well as the ability to see the through line of your life. Like, what is it, your life going to look like when you get to the other side of this? And you have to have that. You have to have a little bit of hope. Victor Frankl's famous book, Man's Search for Meaning, spoke to that. How did the people who lived through a concentration camp were the ones who actually could see to the other side what their life was going to be like. And then the third stage of transition is the beginning of something new. And think of the butterfly. 
Uh, that second stage is obviously the chrysalis. It's dark and gooey, but it's where the transformation happens. The third stage is the butterfly. and But the butterfly, when it leaves the chrysalis, often ends up on the ground because it's got wet wings and it's never flown before. And it takes a little bit of a growth mindset, a willingness to be a beginner to be able to, to get that right. So that's the second one. And the third thing you mentioned was just the social support. You know, we do need social support. We do not have rituals or rites of passage in midlife. And part of the reason I created MEA, or I created it with Jeff and Christine, and I love them, my co-founders, they, we, each of the three of us bring something to the table that's very different from each other, which is great. The reason we created it was partly because we recognized that there were, were not many ways for people to understand how do you have support through the transitions of midlife. I lost five male friends to suicide between age 42 and 52 during the Great Recession, three of them entrepreneurs. And it was a terrible and I, and I was having my own suicide ideation myself between 45 and 50. And so I just feel so deeply down to my toes that we need to create better social support, better tools for people to understand what they're going through in midlife. And that's really what MEA is all about. And that's why I wrote this new book, Learning to Love Midlife, 12 Reasons Why Life Gets Better with Age, to help people to understand this life stage that has a really bad brand, <laughs> midlife crisis. <laughs> Right. We're going to jump back to those three things because there's so much meat on that bone to go through. But you're so well read in this whole world that arguably you were pioneer of, of this, I call it a, a movement. For let's, call it a movement. let's call it a movement. Let's call it. Let's put a flag <laughs> in, the, in the ground and call it a movement. But where did the midlife crisis come from? So in 1965, a Canadian psychologist who was not well known at all wrote a white paper about the midlife crisis. And he only studied, frankly, men who are artists and writers. And it was a very small sample size of who he was looking at. And he came up with this coining of that term, midlife crisis. And it, it just stuck. And it became sort of a, a trope of Hollywood and like, oh, you're going through the midlife crisis. And, and then you saw the person, you know, American Beauties, Kevin Spacey, <laughs> get, getting his red sports car and like dating his you know, daughter's best friend from high school, while she's in high school. And that's, you sort of started to see it and became a bit of a, a joke, the midlife crisis, you know. And so what's sad, quite frankly, is there are three st life stages that actually were sort of created or discovered in the 20th century. Adolescence didn't exist until 1904 when a book called Adolescence came out. And I got, you know, adolescence or teen years got a ton of attention after that. Retirement, 1930s, became a big deal. You know, Social Security, pensions and AARP and retirement communities. But midlife, so these are the three the three life stages that you know really emerged in the 20th century. The third one was midlife, but because we were living longer. In the year 1900, we lived till 47. In the year 2000, we lived till 77. We added 30 years of longevity in the United States in one century. So midlife became a thing, but nobody studied it. We just made jokes about it. So long story short is midlife crisis deserves a reconsideration. And I gave a TED Talk earlier this year that came out last month called The Alternative to the Midlife Crisis, but it's really the midlife chrysalis. It's the idea that what if midlife, based upon the U-curve of happiness research, when people get happier after age 50, after a low point around 45 to 50, what if, in fact, midlife is this, this time when we're sort of, you know, uh, I don't know, metamorphosizing ourselves and liquefying the past so that we can actually be lighter moving into the future. And I deeply believe that, and I've seen it, but we're stuck with midlife crisis as the primary word attached to midlife in the mainstream at this point. 
those three things that we identified earlier in the conversation, too much comfort, lack of clarity and lack of support. They are like when hearing you talk about it, they are so intertwined. And I'm just going off my own personal experience. If I'm known as X and then I go off to be Y, the people that mentally try and keep me in X oh, yeah. are, is my tightest circle, family and friends, right? Yeah, no, this is hard because often when you're changing or transitioning, it can change the systemic dynamic, you know, especially in a family. When one person's changing, it's like, especially if a spouse, the other spouse feels sort of an obligation to be changing too, and they don't want that. So there's a lot of people who want you to be who you've been because they know what that is. It's a known quantity and and quality. And, and if you're changing, then maybe that means I have to change and I don't want to change. So, you know, it's interesting. People come to MEA and, you know, a lot of times they come with spouses, but sometimes most of the time they come on their own. And like one of the things we really help them with as they're going back from a week-long program is like, okay, you're going back to the real world and how do we make these tools and practices work in the real world? And how do you do the re-entry with your family, friends, or community in a way that allows you to not get depressed because you just need to be prepared that you know, that you've got to go back and sort of the last thing you should be doing after a workshop like this is on Monday coming back and changing everything. You shouldn't do anything too quickly. You shouldn't scare everybody around you. You know how frustrated I was, as, as you know, I was on the founding board member of Burning Man nonprofit. And the last thing anybody ever wants is people coming back from Burning Man and saying, oh, so great. Like we hate those people. And I'm someone who's gone to Burning Man 16 times. We hate those people. And we hate the people who come back from a workshop and say, oh my God, I, I'm, all my new best friends. I mean, yes, you have had a profound experience. Yes, you have a new perspective on how your life's going to be. And yes, you have to integrate that into the life you already have. And so <laughs> the natural tendency is going to be like, I I just want to like, you know, chuck it all. And it's like vegan and CrossFit. Oh my God. Exactly. Exactly. It's like, a, it's a cult. It's a cult and we don't want to be a cult. But, you know, we do have a strong culture. <laughs> <laughs> Why are we so hard around change? That's a huge question. And I just want your like knee-jerk reaction to it because you're in charge of it for a lot of people. Well, they're in charge of it for themselves. We're giving them tools. That's really all we're doing. You know, I can't be in charge of their change because I can't, I don't control them. But what I can help, what I can say is the following. You know, a fixed mindset, you tend to focus on proving yourself and you like to play games you can win. And as we get older, if we have a fixed mindset and we only want to play games we can win, we don't venture out to become a beginner again. Our, our sandbox gets smaller and smaller. So change requires being a beginner again. Change requires being a little awkward and liminal. Change requires looking a little stupid <laughs> in what you're doing. And it messes with the systemic dynamic. So it's very easy to get stuck. And I think if I were to like put a bumper sticker on the car of everybody who comes to MEA of what their mindset is when they get there, I would say I'm stuck is probably one of the number one things people are saying in whatever form of language they're using. But I'm stuck is what a lot of people feel. They don't know how to get unstuck. And a lot of it has to do with this psychological mindset piece. And how do you do this with 20 or 24 other people in a workshop where we're all going through this together? When we were adolescents, teenagers, we went through things together. We went through 
being on a sporting team. We went through graduation. We went through, you know, drinking for the first time. We went through our first, you know, love affair. We don't go through the experiences of middle essence, not adolescence, but middle essence with each other. We go through them generally alone. And this is particularly true of men. Women are more open to talking about their lives and what's not working. Men are really bad at this. And so we're going through the transitions of midlife, often alone, sort of feeling like we're getting it wrong, the game of life wrong. And um, man, do we need that social support and the sense that not only do we have the social support, because that actually sometimes feels bad, especially for men. Like, oh man, I am like such a loser that I need support from my friends, duh, or family members, or my spouse. When you're in a workshop with a bunch of two dozen people who are all going through it together, you are like mirrors for each other. And you're not the only one in the room who's struggling with something and going through it. And someone else in the room, when you talk about it, says like, oh my God, dude, I get what you're saying. This is a reoccurring theme. So I'm talking to artists, I'm talking to entrepreneurs, I'm talking to philanthropy in these discussions, comfort and ego, like that seems to be <laughs> the 800 pound yeah, let's talk you know, about elephant ego. in the room, right? Here's a metaphor I have just come up with recently and wrote a blog post on it. When I was in sixth grade, you know, when I was very young, I went to ballroom dancing class. Like, like who does that today? But back in the day, back in the 1960s, I went to ballroom dancing class and I learned how to become the boy leading the girl in ballroom dancing. So I think that the way it works with the ego is that the ego is leading the dance up until around midlife. So up until around 50-ish, and it doesn't mean people don't still have an ego. It just means the ego is now going to move from the male role to the female role. Again, apologies to those of you who don't like my gender traditionalism here. So the, all of a sudden, the soul starts to emerge. So it's the ego and the soul. Are they at war with each other? There's some people who would say they are. I actually think of them dancing together. And so in the early part of our lives, our soul is being led by the ego. And the soul's along for the ride and sort of maybe laughing occasionally. And then around midlife, according to Richard Rohr, you know, a famous Christian mystic and MEA alum, as well as an MEA teacher he's teaching at our Santa Fe campus in July, as well as Carl Jung, the, social, the psychologist, they both said that basically the first half of your adult life, it's the ego that's the op primary operating system. And it's around midlife that it moves to the soul. And I like to now think of that as the soul is now leading the dance. And how do you know that? I mean, again, like what, that, this is all sort of like crazy talk, Chip. No, it's not because there's all kinds of social science research that shows that around 50 years old, people start to have like a lot more spiritual curiosity, a lot more something inside of them is looking for purpose and meaning. And, you know, there's people who, as a result of that, start to go on a different path. To me, that's the new operating system that's starting to emerge. But we have given no roadmap or operating instructions in society to say, here's how you make that transition. And that transition, that transition from ego to soul, is part of the, the transition we're talking about. And so thank you for bringing up ego. I find it, it seems to pop up, not in its raw form, but it's layered underneath a lot of what we discuss. And I'm wondering if a lot of people who can't recognize that that's actually what's happening, because I think you're absolutely correct. Like when you are battling your ego, maybe you're battling it for the first time and you really don't know how to deal with it. 
there are a lot of things that conspire to have our ego starting to have less of a grip on our lives. What are those things? Well, our body's starting to fall apart a little bit. You know, we're starting to, you know, in your 40s and your 50s, you notice that your body isn't what it used to be. And I'm not saying there aren't people with, you know, YouTube videos who are doing things in their 80s that I couldn't do in my 60s now, or I not have been able to do in my 20s. And that happens. But the average person out there, it just sees that deterioration going on. So you can't be so invested in the physical side of ego. For many people, they have kids or they have other responsibilities that are very, you know, predominant in your, their 40s and maybe even their 50s. And, and there's a sense like, okay, I have a lot of responsibility for other people. My parents, that sandwich generation thing, they're like, okay, got parents, got kids, like, okay. Therefore, you can't have a ton of ego in that. And so I just think there's a lot conspiring to lead people to moving to this place of like more curiosity. Maybe if they're not like me, <laughs> they have created more space, what I call time affluence. It's one of the 12 reasons why life gets better with age. It's the one I'm the worst at. Although I'm going to the hot springs tomorrow after my <laughs> radiation treatment. I'm you know having radiation for prostate cancer and going to the hot springs for three days and like, yes, yes, yes. So time affluence there. But you know, when you have time affluence, you have space to be curious again. We're really bred out of our curiosity from around adolescence all the way up till around 50-ish. So curiosity opens up new possibilities as well. First of all, let's acknowledge that you just said that you're halfway through radiation. <laughs> I mean, that's no small ordeal. <laughs> it's a pain in the pelvis. <laughs> <laughs> right. But I do want to follow that up with prior to me hitting the recording button, you said on the days after your last treatment, <laughs> in complete Chip Connolly style, where are you going? My last treatment's on January 12th. And on January 13th, I fly to New York because my book comes out that week, Learning to Love Midlife. And on the 15th, you know, three days after my radiation ends, I am on Good Morning America. And then two days later on the Today Show. So... <laughs> So if that's not a good kick in the ass to anyone who's sitting around um, twilling their thumbs, thinking of what to do with themselves, you are an aspiration and an inspiration. And a total nutcase. Yeah, <laughs> that too. But that's why, that's why we love you. Yeah, thank you. So I just wonder if people knew, and again, you have way more experience than I do. If people were told, oh yeah, that's your ego getting in the way let that go. And can you allow for the time, which is also a very difficult thing for people. And I had a similar experience where I sold a company and I was a musician, a touring musician for a number of years. And that gave me that, would you call it the time? The time affluence. Yeah, yeah. The time affluence. And I was working for my wife at the time. I was doing both of those things. And it gave me four or five years to really think about what's next. So that's for real. That time affluence thing is for real. I mean, when you're on the treadmill and you don't have time to imagine other things, no wonder you feel burned out. No wonder if you're bored. No wonder you don't feel a lot of inspiration. And so how you get yourself off that treadmill. And even if it's just getting off the treadmill for a week, I mean, that's like what MEA is about. It's like, get off the treadmill for a week and see how your perspective might change. Because we are so mechanized as, especially Americans, in terms of this, you know, Protestant work ethic that we have, which I, I have it in spades for sure. And I love what I do, which helps. But the fact that you can get off the treadmill and sort of have some space, what Mary Catherine Bateson calls the midlife atrium, 
where you actually create some spaciousness to actually reimagine how you want to live the second half of your adult life. We all need that. Right. And then the other two points, I mean, MEA smacks these all day long, which is the how-to, you know, and it's not like you go through and you're checking boxes when you're at MEA, but that whole, you know, lack of clarity of how do I start, that's one of the tenets of what MEA is. There are three, there's really four, there's three pillars that define the curriculum and then a, a broad umbrella. The number one is navigating transitions. We've been talking a lot about that. The second one is cultivating purpose. And purpose is a, co- a conversation that, you know, is worth having because people get very possessive of their purpose, like, especially if they don't have one. They feel like all their friends have a purpose, but they don't have one. It's like a BMW or something like that. Purpose is not a noun. It's a verb. It's like, how are you purposeful? Uh-huh. And in being purposeful, you will find your purpose. And so you often find purposefulness when you're agitated, excited, curious, or there's some roots of something, a passion that you used to have that has gotten lost. And those things will take you there. And then the third pillar of our program is called owning wisdom. And it's really about how do you help create people? How do you help people like make sense of their life experience? It can be metabolized into wisdom. And then the, the fourth one that's the umbrella is reframing our relationship with aging, which we've talked about. Right. Which almost is a byproduct of everything that we just talked about. That's right. If you do those three things, you have reframed your relationship with aging. It's so funny. What what you describe and talk about and in your, not only your own experiences, but then your experiences that you are consuming at MEA, it's exactly what I went through. You know, we actually didn't have a purpose when we started Caddis and I had one foot out, you know, one foot in, one foot out. I didn't know that's what was lacking, but I didn't have my purpose and I didn't have a name for it, but I knew something was missing. And it wasn't until six months after starting it, it hit me like a ton of bricks of donating a percentage of all sales to music education. And it goes back to something to when I was a child, something that I care. And so everything that you just said is like spot on to what I experienced. I guess the main takeaway is none of us are special. <laughs> well, we're, so here's the thing that's interesting. We're all going through something, but we uh-huh. have not, you know, we were given instructions when we were a teenager about how you live your life. We threw them away. I mean, we didn't necessarily like this instructions, but there was all these guardrails for that era. And then we go into adulthood and we have a lot of guardrails because of our obligations and all the things we're doing. And it's in midlife that you probably take, you want to take the guardrails off, but then you also want to have a little bit of a map, a roadmap for how to go through this period. And, you know, the Kevin Spacey and American Beauty basically took the guardrails off and then had no map. And so did all of the crazy midlife crisis, selfish- Self-destructive. Self-destructive things that often can happen. I mean, often, sometimes happen during midlife. (laughs) Um, Not often, I I would say, but more midlife. But actually it makes for good movies. Um, (laughs) You know, like, (laughs) but uh, yeah, we need a roadmap. Emmy is a roadmap. I think midlife wisdom schools, which is, you know, the category that we've called ourselves because who, what the hell do you call? Yeah. Right. So I think that you'll see a lot more programs like this in the next 20 years. I hope so. So let's talk about, I want you to give us your elevator pitch of what's happening in Santa Fe. And I want to hear about the new book. You know, we had our campus, we still have our campus in Baja. It's spectacular. It's where Tim and I live most of the time and we love it, but we wanted to have something in the U.S. And so we bought a 2,600 acre ranch that had been a cattle ranch. We turned it into a regenerative horse ranch. So it's regenerative grazing principles that actually bringing the land back, the soil back. And we have a ton of 
horses there. So we do horseback riding as well as equine assisted learning. We open in April and we have two retreat centers there. So in Baja, we have just the one on the beach and at this 2,600 acres, four square miles, we have two retreat centers there. And so we do workshops there. We also do a lot of private groups there too. We have a lot on the books for 2024 of private groups that want to go through our program or frankly, just want to have a retreat center that's really pretty luxury. And so, yeah, that's what we're doing there. And love that. You know, Santa Fe is an interesting place. I mean, there's a lot of people who say like, oh man, I love Santa Fe, but I haven't been there in 12 years or 15 years or whatever, because it's not on the beaten path. It's not where you go for corporate travel. It's not where you go for a convention, typically. You know, it's not a highly populated place. And it's not necessarily a bedroom community for some other major metro. Denver's really the major metro that's closest, but that's six hours by driving. So it's sort of nice. It's sort of what I think we've cracked the code on with both Baja and Santa Fe is we want people to feel like by coming to the place, you're taking a little bit of a pilgrimage and you're feeling a little liminal. Because we could have done this in Sonoma and said like, okay, Bay Area is our number one market for people going to MEA. Let's have something in Sonoma. But then you're, it's a commuter school. And the fact that you're having to make the commitment, typically jump on a plane to come and visit us. And then you're there and it's like, and the place feels a little bit not normal for you. Like Santa Fe doesn't feel like it's in the U.S. Baja is not in the U.S. And so that's exciting. And then the book is called Learning to Love Midlife, 12 Reasons Why Life Gets Better with Age. And I really wanted to take all this learning that we've talked about today and turn it into something that was not too long. I, a lot of my books can be headier and longer. I wanted something that was relatively easy to read. You can read it flying from L.A. to New York. And I wanted to sort of capture the zeitgeist of where we are as a society, but also the flavor of what my daily blog, Wisdom Well, is like. So that comes out January 16th. Nice. So the newsletter, we'll post about that and we'll make sure people can get access to that because that is truly one of the gifts that you give to the world. The book that you wrote after your time at Airbnb, if you want to... Called, that's called Wisdom at Work, The Making of a Modern Elder. Right. Uh, yeah. Great book. It's a great it, read. Yeah. It really helps. I think it's about intergenerational collaboration. It's about how to be a mentor. It's about how to change your mindset of who you are in your 50s. Very, you know, personal story. Yeah. Great. Chip, thank you. Tim, thank you. As always, an awesome to see you. I wish we were in the same room together, but we yeah. will be when you go back down to Baja. I'm there for a couple of days in early January, but then I'm not there much for, you know, a couple months because okay. of this, the book tour, but I'll be there waiting for you. Chip, have a great right. holiday and I will see you real soon. Thanks too.